Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy, and I am with super producer Alex for another episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. Alex, how are you? Here I am. Thanks for having me, Tracy. Glad to be here. Oh, I'm always psyched when you're here. We just have such a good time. We do. Yeah, Yeah. I, I put up with you every single time. Unless I put up with you more. So, yeah, which is uh, now, Alex, have you ever been uh, arrested? Yes. <laughs> Briefly. <laughs> A couple of times. <laughs> While I'm not 100% surprised to hear that, yet another thing that I didn't know about you. <laughs> <coming> up. <laughs> Do we need to go into the details here? None of these were things that were uh, significant in a large way. I mean, one was bounce check fees at, at the bank. It was actually ATM fees at a bank. Uh, they, I took money out of an ATM. My bank tried to tell me later on that, oh, you didn't have that money in there, even though the ATM told you that it was in there. So we're going to charge you overdraft fees and late fees and I mean, all a bunch of fees. And, uh, and I'm like, well, that's stupid. The ATM said the money was in there. I'm not paying these fees. Well, it turns out that legislatively in Georgia at the time, that mm-hmm. shook out to be uh, the same as writing a bad check. Oh. And they were able to, they, they actually, this, I was in college, they uh, took out a, a bench warrant against me. Somebody, you know, the, the sheriff came to, came to school and took me out of a class and arrested me no. for ATM fees. I, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, but you know, in an hour, I was bailed out, and um, and you know, I paid a couple hundred dollars in fines, and that was the end of that. Now, would you think that that the police are uh, corrupt for doing that? No, I would not say. No, there was no corruption in that. It was pretty cut and dry. You know, bench warrant got issued. Police go out and serve the warrant. That's that. I'm not happy about how they did it, but that's. I, I don't know a better way to do it. No. Oh. I guess not. Well, they got you. Well, um, you know, in Canada, they got a problem with corruption. Like what? Well, uh, they do not like as as bad of a rap as the police tend to have here, at least in the media, because, you know, you never report when the when the police do great things mm-hmm. um, in Canada. It's worse. And Tell so me about that. Do, well, our uh, guest today, Kelly Donovan became a police officer and uh, reported some illegal behavior and mostly inconsistent enforcement of certain laws, like abuse laws and things like that. And she is still trying to fight uh, the police trying to silence her and other victims. So she reported illegal behavior in the community or within the department? Within the department. So she was a police officer. Yeah, reporting illegal behavior inside the department. How about yeah, that? Yeah, that's not going to go well. Well, it did, has not gone well, but yeah. she's really working to change the laws so no one has to uh, be a victim of officer misconduct. As should have been done a long time ago or maybe from the start. And I applaud her actions. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, that's that's one of my biggest pet peeves in America with law enforcement, certainly in the last 20 years with the militarization of our police and how it's become a, 
a far different culture, a much more aggressive culture. But it seems like every time I turn on the TV, the police have beaten some unarmed person to death in handcuffs again. And I mean, I read two of those stories last week. Oh, you did? Um, oh, I didn't see those. Oh, yeah. I mean, th there was the, well, anyway, when you get get into it, but uh, it just th there's a difference between professional police and people who have a sense of professionalism and conduct themselves in that way. And I think there is a small faction in every department and just mm -hmm. culturally uh, that are not there to be professionals. They're there because it's more of a, it's an ego thing. Yeah. They want They're to do some beat downs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what, I mean, when you start your shift with your, with your staff sergeant or whomever uh, telling you, you know, let's go kick some ass. Okay. That's, that's not how you want to start, but I mean, that, that's just not a good indication of what people should do. Uh, policing is a job and it should be done professionally by professionals with people that are not attached to their ego. The reality of being able to separate your ego from a job that is so immersing. Uh, I don't know how somebody would do that. And my hat's off to those that can, Oh, it's that's the ideal. I don't know if we'll ever get there. Yeah, it's it's tough to do. My very first law enforcement training class that I did was about pre-employment screening. Mm -hmm. And they talked about that very thing about how there's there's bad apples that are come through and they just want power over other people. They're going to do whatever they need to do. Um, and anyway, our guest today, Kelly Donovan, is going to tell us all about how this unfolds in Canada because it's different than in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say way worse. And man, really? she is fighting the good fight out there. Way worse. All right, I can't wait to hear this. Let's go do it. All right, let's get to Kelly. Hey, it's Tracy, and I am back with what I know is going to be a super fascinating interview. I got Kelly Donovan in the house with me, and um, she is a whistleblower. That is, it. and what I've learned is that whistleblowing is extremely difficult uh, to actually pull off on a long-term basis just because it's so stressful it's so stressful and your story is really different from any ones that i that i've heard because you actually blew the whistle if i'm right you blew the whistle on the police while you're a police person isn't that is is that kind of the basis of it yeah exactly <laughs> okay all right so um kelly welcome to the show let's just dive in what happened well, I guess if you want to pick a, a starting point, it would be 2016. So mm -hmm. while I was working as a police officer, um, I started to kind of catch wind. Like a, some of them were rumors, but I started even reading headlines in newspaper um, about officers that had been charged and arrested criminally. Um, some were arrested. And then I, I caught wind of other cases within the service where an allegation was made against an officer, even worse than the allegation for which the officer was arrested, but that particular officer wouldn't be investigated. So in total, there were four cases I was made aware of at the time. And I knew that there were crazy inconsistencies. <clears throat> you know, some officers had committed egregious things, but not even investigated. And other officers might have committed something minor that might have almost just been a peace bond between an ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, but they get arrested. You know, the investigation gets blown up to, to be this homicide scale investigation just crazy inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. And I knew like having my personal experience before becoming a police officer was that I reported 
my spouse at the time, who was a police officer, I reported him to the to his police service for domestic related issues. And they investigated him and pretty much said to me, well, we could arrest him, but you know, we won't because it just would be a burden on your family right now. But Canada has a law, especially when it comes to domestic violence, we have a mandatory charge policy. So it doesn't, it, it takes the control away from the victim. Because as you know, in domestic violence cases, most of the time the victim doesn't want to proceed. They're afraid of the repercussions. Mm -hmm. So Canada took the control away from the victim and said to a police officer, if you have grounds, you have to make the arrest. But what I saw was happening when police investigate themselves, because in Canada, that's what we do. I don't know how different it is in the United States. But if an allegation, a domestic allegation gets made, it could be that person's colleague that investigates them. There's nothing that says it has to be done by an outside agency. Mm -hmm. So what I saw was they were just picking and choosing when they want to take an allegation, run with it, go after the officer, you know, try to get their job, everything. It was being used as a tool. You know, criminal Mm -hmm. charges were being used as a tool by police leadership. So um, I started raising the issue at my union saying like, you know, how long has this been happening? Am I the only one that has a problem with this? Because I knew it had been going on for at least a decade, maybe two, maybe forever, right? I mean, I was new to the profession, but nobody had an interest in doing anything. Everyone just said, like, this is the way policing is. Like, the chief gets to make the decisions and we don't question him. Like, we're not insubordinate. Okay, so let's talk about this a little bit. Now, what exactly went on was for for you, like, domestic, like, do you want to say anything about like well for me i made an allegation of abuse like physical mm-hmm. a physical assault got it um and now that i'm trained as a as a criminal investigator i know that he should have been arrested sure you know i had an injury like you know and and the way it went down like you know without t- spending too much time on the details there mm-hmm. were two incidents the first incident i didn't actually report but um, my ex knew that i had attended the courthouse I was I was actually going in there to talk to a family law lawyer. Mm-hmm. They had this clinic set up where you could go and talk to a lawyer. But he he had a colleague watch me go into the building. Oh, um, so he and he called me right away, said, what are you doing down there? Like I was being watched 24 seven because he was a police officer in the town where we where we were living. Uh-huh. Um, so I think after the first incident, he must have said something to his supervisor. So they showed up at my house and wanted to interview me. But the way they conducted that interview, like they gave me a piece of paper and wanted me to write down what had happened, which is not usual in a domestic violence no. case. Uh-uh. But he stood behind me, full uniform sergeant, stood behind me and leaned over my shoulder and was telling me, like, make sure you understand the implication of what you're telling us in the statement. Uh-huh. Like, oh, make sure man. you he kept saying, do you understand the implication? He was trying to influence me to water down my statement. Yeah, and it worked yeah. because I did. I, I saw my statement after, you mm-hmm. know, a year later, I, I went through freedom of information and obtained all the records. So I know I watered it down at the time. Uh-huh. And then and then after the second incident, I said, I want to go in there and, and do a video statement because so, I knew then that I'd be on camera. My injury would be on camera. Yeah. Um, and he, even after the second incident, they still didn't charge him. So it, it was clearly an assault. He I mean, Especially once I became a police officer, I started seeing the charges that people were arrested for. There was, I remember one morning seeing a briefing where it was a um, assault with a weapon, domestic related, and you read the details and it was an argument at a, a, a kitchen table. The husband threw his sandwich at his wife and uh-huh. we're going to go arrest him for arrest, assault with a weapon, domestic uh-huh. related assault. Assault with a sandwich. So, so Right. So I'm reading these briefings thinking like, that's really odd that we don't even arrest our own people when they do worse. But we Mm -hmm. go after citizens that do these things that are, you know, is it an assault? Sure. But it's when you compare them, they're so inconsistent. 
Uh-huh. You know, and and like you said in your opening, I mean, as a police officer, we swear an oath of office in Canada and it is to enforce the laws impartially and objectively. Uh-huh. And and that's not what I was seeing. I saw that they were very selective and it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't proper selectivity. It wasn't like, well, you know, he's he has never committed an offense. We're going to go easy on him. It was just a matter of who you were, uh-huh. you know, the, whether you were a police officer or not. And even if you were a police officer, what's your rank? You know, because the higher up you go, the less you're going to ever be looked at objectively. Well, that's the same in, in corporate as as well. So because, um, you know, I, I talk about a lot of fraud here. Same same thing. So, OK, now let's let's back up a little bit. So you weren't always a police officer, were you? Like, didn't you kind of come no. into it? OK, so talk about how how'd you get like to that spot? Well, it was after the the personal experience that I had. I mean, I had to. It, it really didn't sit well with me. And even as we went through the family court process, like mm-hmm. police just kept getting deference. Police were always, they were the truth tellers. Everyone else is lying. So it, it was basically that I had made the whole thing up. I'd made mm-hmm. these false allegations against mm-hmm. him because he's a cop. It, it really didn't sit well with me, but I didn't know what to do about it. I knew that if I yell and scream about this one particular issue, like what's really going to change? Mm-hmm. So that was what got me into policing. Like I said, more people like me need to get into the profession and set an example for others that, you know, if you're willing to actually do your job impartially and point the finger at the person doing wrong, no matter who it is, then Mm -hmm. you should be a cop. So -hmm. that's what got me into it. And when I was interviewed for the job in 2010, I was totally honest with them because I also knew that they could look it all up in their systems. You know, Mm -hmm. they could see the calls for service that I'd been involved in. So I was completely honest. I told them why I wanted to be a cop, what I hope to achieve in the profession. So they knew from day one that you know, I had this heightened sense of right and wrong that Mm -hmm. I was going to call people out no matter who they were. Mm -hmm. And they brought me in. So I started in the, you know, winter of 2011. And um, from there on in, like, they shouldn't have been surprised later on when I called them out when I started to see the same things happening. Okay, wait, so so then so you had like domestic trouble, like, before you were a cop, and that's why you decided to be a cop? Was that it? And then it continued while you were a cop? Yeah, I mean, when I when I became a cop, it, that's just what opened my eyes to the fact that it was happening everywhere, because mm-hmm. I, I obviously didn't, I didn't work for the service in my hometown, mm-hmm. I went somewhere else. But that's where I realized that it, it's the same thing everywhere. They just mm-hmm. decide, they arbitrarily just decide like, oh, this person, yeah, we'll go after them, this person. And, you know, it, it really was completely arbitrary. I couldn't find any legal reason why we would pursue charges against one person and not even investigate another it Mm -hmm. just was so wrong to me and Mm -hmm. and didn't sit well so i I mean at the time like i I really wanted to do something about that issue Mm -hmm. and the unions here like really the unions are the only ones that are legally allowed to speak on behalf of a police officer Hmm. um so i went to the union said like this is a problem for me and they just pretty much said it's always been this way you're Uh not going to change it you Uh know Um, And then when I started looking at like our laws in Canada at the time, they actually prohibited a police officer from complaining about a police officer at their own service. So I was prohibited by law Uh to make a complaint against my own service. It it was totally ridiculous. You know, and even our um, the internal police policy on complaints said that only a member of the public can bring a complaint forward. So I everywhere I turned, I was just blocked and blocked and blocked. And I didn't know. Like, how do I bring this issue to light? So what I decided to do, because we have police service boards in Ontario and they Mm -hmm. oversee the police service, Mm -hmm. Um, primarily the chief's performance, right? They oversee the chief and monitor his performance. So I I asked to speak at a board meeting. I put myself on the list as a delegate um, and they wanted to know the subject of what I was going to speak about. And I said, selective enforcement. 
mm-hmm. because that's what it was. Um, and I, I attended a board meeting and I just sat down at the table and started to speak. And I made myself, I, I, I needed to give them enough to know that I knew what I was talking about. I wasn't just coming up with theories. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I talked about some, you know, because some of the officers that had been under investigation and charged were giving me evidence in their case. They were saying like, here's the evidence. And it shows that I didn't do what they're accusing me of, but they're still going ahead with the charges. Mm-hmm. And in, in the one case where they didn't investigate the officer, I had the victim giving me information saying, this is what he did to me and they don't even want to pursue it. Mm-hmm. So I had enough information to tell the board that, listen, I know that they are selectively choosing who to and who not to arrest and charge when there's an allegation made and in some cases not even investigate. Mm -hmm. So I gave them what I knew, but it wasn't anything I learned in the course of my duties as a police officer. It was all stuff that I had done on the side, trying to do my own investigating because I I wasn't going to stick my neck on the line unless I knew that what I was saying was true. Right. That's been my my thing from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I told them enough to know that there's a problem. And I really thought from the meeting onward that they were going to call me in and say, "Okay, what do you have? Right. Like what's the evidence you have? And Mm -hmm. let's see what we can do about this. But I did. I did my delegation. They didn't have any questions. We have very. um, How do I say this lightly? We have boards up here that are in some cases selective like selected to members are selected to sit on the board. Um, They're, they're in a sense, they're trained to be effective to the point that police chiefs want them to be effective. Oh, well, if that makes sense. Yeah. So they're not given all the information, right? The only information the board gets comes from the chief, but they're the ones that oversee the chief's performance. It's a huge conflict. And I've identified that with lawmakers to say, you know, if they're supposed to evaluate his performance, but they're only ever hearing from him, don't you think there's a problem? Uh-huh. So when I when I said this to the board, I think the board really thought that I was out to lunch. I don't know what I'm talking about, you know, because they've trusted the chief. He's doing a great job. Why are you telling us that he's not? So a week later, I was called into internal affairs and uh-huh. the chief disciplined me. So the chief put me under investigation for misconduct, Oh, um, took for me out what? of my job for, do- for doing what? Well, he said I. he actually accused me of neglect of duty, which is uh-huh. odd because that's kind of what I accused him of. Um, breach of confidence, which, uh-huh. you know, again, that would be that I disclosed information I obtained in my duties, which I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and discreditable conduct. So I acted discreditably for a police officer is what he was accusing me of. At the time, there were six charges, two counts of each. Uh-huh. Um, so I was taken out of my job too. At the time, I was a use of force instructor and I was told I couldn't actively train anyone anymore. So they put me on administrative duties. And at that time, he pre- he pretty much said, I'm not allowed to present anything else to the board. I'm not allowed to go back to a meeting and present to the board again. But that night, I sent an email to the board members to let them know that I was now facing retaliation. Because if the if the chief didn't tell them, they would never know. Uh-huh. So I sent the board members an email. I said, listen, I came to you in good faith. I wanted you to take me seriously and look at this issue. And now I'm facing retaliation from the hands of the person I re- tried to report to you. Uh-huh. Um because of the email, because the board the board shared that email with the chief, which they're not supposed to do, because the board is also under an oath of office to act impartially. Uh-huh. But they shared my email with the chief, so the chief disciplined me again. And the second round of discipline, I, like two additional counts of misconduct were added, and I was then put on a, no, a strict no-contact order with members of the board. So I was well, you told no, you cannot no contact before, uh, didn't you? So, OK, well, he said he, the reason he said I couldn't reattend is because um, I had said at the end of my presentation that I wanted to come back the next month because I didn't get to all of my information in my delegation. Mm-hmm. So I had said I'm going to come back in July because I'd already booked that day off work. So he strictly the first time he strictly said you will not reattend in July 
you're going to tell them that you're going to cancel that appearance. So at the, the first, the first directive was not no contact. It just uh, said, oh. you can't reattend in July. So I sent the email thinking, I, I, I still felt like I had to tell the board what was going on, uh-huh. you know, like he's keeping all this from them, but they're the ones in charge of the whole police service. How can they do their jobs if yeah. they don't know what's really going on? Oh my goodness. Okay. So, th- so what happened then? Did you go? So I, well, I did. No, I, I didn't go to the board meeting. I mean, I was completely gagged from that point on. Uh-huh. Um, and I did everything I could. Like I reached out to our human rights tribunal. I filed a workplace harassment complaint. Like anybody I could think of, I was reaching out to them to say that, like, I made my disclosure in good faith. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when am I actually going to be heard on these on these allegations? Um, and the police service did what now, you know, I know now because I've done my research since my delegation, but they did what they always do. They contract outside police services to come in and they write a report that tells them what they want to hear, you know, that everything you guys are doing is great. Keep it up. But, you know, in, in the one I was interviewed about one of the investigations and I gave the it was a staff sergeant from another police service. I gave her very concrete issues that I had with that investigation. I said, mm-hmm. there's this, there's this. I, I gave her 13 points. Um, and there were things like conflicts of interest and who they appoint to investigate uh-huh. a whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. She didn't even look into the things I gave her. She just wrote a report that said everything was great. But in the report, she also was, you know, she made some comments that were false. Um, mm-hmm. And she, you know, she put things in the report that had already been contradicted by my chief. So the whole thing, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a proper review of that particular investigation, sure. but they they cleared it all up and said, no, everything's fine. They were really trying to, to continue to paint the picture that I had committed misconduct. Uh-huh. And at that point, like I knew that they were going to probably go after my job. Like I knew that, that they were building a, a big case against me to just eliminate me. Yeah. Um, they had, they had accused me of deceit. They said I was being deceitful. Um, and, you know, and as this was going on, like we have a, a law that says after six months, they have to charge you. Like they have to formally hold a hearing oh. or they can't proceed with the charges. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, I was waiting and waiting. And even on administrative duties, I was trying to do my best work. I was I was actually putting the use of force stat reports together to go to the board, even though I was on a no contact order. They were seeing my work, which I thought was kind of ironic. Huh. Um, but I went through I did a full review of all of our training material. Like I was I was putting together our e-learning programs. So I, I was still doing good work, but about seven months into this retaliation, um, I, I didn't know at the time, but two years earlier, I started having PTSD symptoms from something mm. that happened on the job. Mm-hmm. But seven months into this retaliation, it got so bad. Like I started having panic attacks. Sure. There was a week I just couldn't go to work. Now, okay. Um, like, so, and- so all this time, are you still with this guy who was the abuser or did you? Oh God, no, no. I mean, it up? Okay. him and I, him and I split up before I became a cop. Oh, you, oh, okay. Yeah, Got it, it. As soon oh, as, okay. as soon as he showed any signs of abuse, our relationship was over. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. So then, okay. Now it all makes sense. Okay. So then, um, but he was still, but he was still a cop. No, he, he later switched into another role, but like, With- so he, he's not really part of uh, the issue at, like it, at my police service. He wasn't part of that issue at all. Uh-huh. It, other than just him continuing to be an annoyance for me, like throughout my career, you know, uh-huh. he, he tried to, he tried to get me fired a couple times. Like he, he would call and report things to professional standards that they uh-huh. would just say to me, like, it sounds like he's harassing you. I said, well, yeah, but his police service won't ever take it seriously. Like, uh-huh. okay. So then, but, but you're, so just so I'm clear about everything, like, so you're, you're trying to go in saying that he wasn't, disciplined properly like for his abusive behavior right through this whole time is that is it 
Like, just so I'm clear on everything. No, I mean, what I reported to the board was just four separate cases not involving me at all. Oh, they were just cases that I knew of, um, but they were so inconsistent. And so, oh. you know, in, it was my opinion that it was illegal, right? Because police don't, when you're given a badge, you're not given the choice to choose against whom to enforce the laws. Uh -huh. It's You enforce them impartially and objectively against all people equally, mm -hmm. but that's not what was happening. Oh, so it was got it. Okay. Yeah, it was that fundamental issue that made me want to speak out in the first place. And my personal experience like that contributed to my knowledge that it was happening because it had happened to me. Got right? it. And, and okay. I made I made that clear to them, right? That like I already know that this happens because I was on the receiving end of making a complaint and having it go nowhere. Uh -huh. But now that I see we're doing the same thing, right? So I mean I mean I, I really I brought enough credibility to the table in 2016 that they should have really sat down with me and wanted to hear what mm -hmm. I had to say. Mm -hmm. But that's not what happens up here. They just immediately go after the whistleblower. It's immediate retaliation. Well, well, the, that's how it is in in most corporations, right? And so, okay, so how how like okay, so what are you doing now? How how what's your evolution been since like this board has just ignored everything, like the police chiefs against you? Like what happened? Well, so it it was fourteen months. Like after the time I made my delegation, it was fourteen months later. I finally decided to resign because I just like 14 months and, and nothing had progressed. They hadn't charged me. You know, my none of my complaints had gone anywhere. I mean, at this point, I had complained all the way up to my prime minister. I'd complained to the premier. I'd complained to our provincial ombudsman. Uh -huh. I had reached out to everybody because whistleblower protection is a it's a hot topic, right? Uh -huh. it, it's out there. Like, we need to protect whistleblowers, but nobody's listening. Yeah. So I really tried to use my case as an example to say that you know, I did my delegation. I didn't want to go public necessarily, but I did my delegation because it was my only way to communicate with the board and mm -hmm. tell them what I knew and not be stopped by my chief. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, all my attempts had failed. So I had to conclude conclude that if I was going to do anything about this, it wasn't going to be as a police officer. It was going to be after that. So I negotiated a resignation. I needed, you know, I, I was a single mom of three kids. Yeah. I wasn't going to just walk away. So I negotiated a deal that would allow me to leave and start a new career. Um, and part of my agreement, and I do say this publicly, and they're still accusing me today, but I, I never agreed to sign an NDA. I adamantly refused to be gagged. Uh -huh. I, you know, I was clear from day one. And, and that's partly why it took so long to negotiate, because they didn't want to let me go without an NDA. But at the end of the day, I, you know, I didn't have to leave, I could have stayed employed. I would have been a good cop, even though they would have continued to come after me. I would have stayed. I had 24 years before retirement. Uh -huh. You know, that's a lot of money. In my <laughs> that's pocket. a long time. Uh -huh. So um, in the end, they did agree. And I left and I wasn't I knew that I wasn't gagged. I knew I could talk. So immediately once I left, I started advocating for whistleblower protection for police officers. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing I did was release a report and I sent it everywhere. And it, it was a culmination of my research. So I had put together cases from across Canada where the same thing had happened because no one had ever done that. Right. No one had looked at like how often are Canadian police chiefs silencing their members who try to expose wrongdoing? It's been happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it was even cases where an officer would report that they were you know, facing racism or sexism, and yeah. they would be retaliated against. Like it was just happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I started by releasing my report. I got a little bit of media attention after the report. And then I started traveling across Canada, going to conferences and sharing my story. And people were really starting to, I was gaining traction, people were listening. Uh -huh. And then the next year, 2018, 
Um, we actually went through a, an entire rewrite of our policing laws in Ontario. So I was able to go to the legislature and share my story. Uh-huh. And it was because of my story that they changed, you know, at that time, they changed the laws. They actually made it a law that if you're a police officer and you witness misconduct, you have to report it, which like it sounds ridiculous that they had to make that a law. Uh-huh. Um, but they were also offering protection from reprisal. So they at that point, they acknowledged that if an officer comes forward and makes a complaint, they should be protected. Yeah. And that was entirely due to my advocating. Right, There was wow. nobody else like me at the time. Uh-huh. Um, so that to me, that was like I felt like I'd done it right. Like there's something there now because of me. I made a difference. Uh-huh. Um, but but they knew. So it didn't take long for me to realize that they weren't going to follow the term. Like so when I left, we both signed a contract. The contract uh-huh. had, diff- you know, terms inside of it. Um, part of it was because I had PTSD, right? When I left, I had PTSD. I was on a sick leave at the time. Uh-huh. Um, and it, so this relates back to a shooting that happened when I was at the police college when I was a recruit. Oh, um, I, w- I was immediately beside a guy that had an ac- accidental discharge and almost lost his life at the college. Ooh. But, you know, I, I was six weeks on the job and I'd only touched a firearm for the first time four weeks prior. You know, it was very, very early in my career. Yeah. And and it really had profound effects on me. And over the years, I had had symptoms of PTSD, but I'd kind of suppressed them. I'd sought medical advice or medical attention a couple of times. Uh-huh. But I was I, th- I think I was managing my symptoms up until the time that I was, you know, retaliated against. Then things well, just got really bad. Let's talk about that for a minute. So um because I have uh, everybody responds differently, like to traumatic situations like that. And so what's what would if you want to share for a minute, like what was your progression there? Like you're standing next to this guy and what, like did he shoot his foot off or something like what happened? Uh, he ended up with four holes. It went in and out and in and out of his leg. So oh he, my goodness. he had an entrance, exit, entrance, exit. His leg was blown apart. Um, the only reason he survived is there was a former paramedic. There was a woman in my class who was a friend of mine who made the jump from being a paramedic to a police officer. And she was on our line and she came running over. And, you know, if it wasn't for her, like she had his pants ripped off, she was plugging holes up because, Uh you know, the way I don't think they'd ever had an accident like that on the shooting range. Uh So even our first aid kit was not with us as we traveled along in the range. It was at the back of the range. So someone had to run you know, 50 yards to get it, to bring it back to the front. And meanwhile, she was already tending to him. Uh Um, But I think for me, because, you know, I had already been apprehensive and scared of this firearm in my hand, knowing that like this thing could kill me or someone Uh else. Like I was, you know, not ever having, you know, I was never a hunter. I never had experience with guns. So I I had a level of apprehension with it to begin with. Um, But being that close and seeing his muzzle flash go off, like there was a moment where I didn't know if it hit me. You know, and I think that's where the PTSD comes from is Mm. like I completely froze Mm -hmm. and just watched the blood pooling on the floor. Like and I don't remember like, you know, I've had therapy and we've tried to kind of piece it together, but I don't remember what happened next. I just remember being in a portable that they kind of shoved us all in for a couple hours. It Uh took a long time for the ambulance and everything. Um, But I so for me, it it was traumatic. But I think the worst part for me was that whenever I would tell my, you know, when I came back to the police service after being at college and I would tell my supervisor, everybody was just like, okay, what's the big deal? Uh Like it was a trading accident. But, you know, I kept trying to say like, yeah, but like I was really close to dying and, you know, like I hadn't even stepped foot on the job. You know, Uh I I was still a recruit because for me, it was like, I couldn't imagine my father getting a call. He was my next of kin at the time Uh getting a call saying, oh, your daughter's dead. Like she didn't survive college. Right. 
my and my three young kids at the time they were I think six four and two Uh like so it was all those things coming together for me that you know put this fear in me like I almost didn't even make it into the job that's how dangerous this job is well it is Um, so let's let's talk about that a little bit so so what kept you going because because I think you might be a little bit like me uh and and this is why I don't work in law enforcement like like when I do my analysis my body language analysis um I'll I work for private uh citizens or uh lawyers or that that kind of thing because I um I I'm I'm just I'm not cut out for the gruesomeness of it I'm not cut out for um always looking for the for the bad and the wrong and being under threat uh all the time and and that kind of thing um and so what drove you forward like knowing that or at least something similar i guess about about yourself why did you keep going well i i really loved the job i mean uh-huh. i think initially you don't really know what you're going to expect like you, you don't know what to expect until you're actually on the job but when i started the job like i am a bit of an adrenaline junkie so i loved the fact that like when you show up to a shift you have no idea what's coming mm-hmm. it could be totally quiet for a couple hours and then you know, things could just pick up and be crazy and you could be mm-hmm. busy for the rest of the shift. Like, so I loved the idea that I didn't know what was coming next. Um, but when it came to like my safety, I just really made like, I wanted to be as equipped as I could be. So physically, um, I started doing heavyweight training. I got mm-hmm. into some bodybuilding just as a personal goal. I wanted to put cool. muscle on. Uh-huh. So I started lifting really heavy and putting on some muscle because I also knew that, you know, the fitter you are, the better you'll recover from an accident yeah. if it happens, mm-hmm. right? If, if you do get shot or whatever. Um, so I just wanted, and I wanted to be as proficient as I could with my weapon. You know, I took mm-hmm. my training very seriously. And I, and obviously they recognized that in me because it was only four years into my career, they made me a use of force instructor. Mm-hmm. So I knew that like, you know, I, I wasn't the karate black belt, but I took everything very seriously. I wanted to be technically skilled. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also... You know, I'd spent a lot of time reading about inquests and stuff like in Canada, we do a lot of inquests into deaths and shootings and everything. Mm-hmm. But the inquest kind of just gets put on a shelf and collects dust. No one ever really looks at it and says, well, what can we do better? But I was constantly reading these inquests and looking for training recommendations and things that I could capitalize on mm-hmm. that would make me a better officer because I want to learn from the mistakes that have already been made. I mean, our training is very basic. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't get a lot of training. And then every year officers only get about one or two days of training to mm-hmm. to learn anything new and bring their skills up to speed. So it's not enough. You have to be taking time on your own to, to work on these things. And that's really what I did was just I, I wanted to know that I would be as prepared as I could be. But if it happened, I would be as healthy as I could be so that I could survive it. Mm-hmm. So so then what what led you to like get like going from like, I don't know if I can handle being around guns really makes me nervous to being the instructor. Like, again, what, what kept you going? Like, I I guess I'm not clear on like, cause I would have been like, okay, I'm out. Like, I think think eventually I had to just start suppressing it because the more I talked about it, the more people told me it was nothing and I should just let it go. Mm -hmm. Um, So in like at the time that they said, we want you to be a use of force instructor. I'd still, I still believed I had a handle on it. I was okay. But for me, the real shift was when they sent me back to the college to become an instructor. So I had to go back to the same place where it happened. Um, and I still I still had a feeling like I can do this. I can manage this. But when we went to the outdoor range and I saw the 
the square of concrete they had to jackhammer out and repour because it was too stained. Yeah. That's when things like I, I visually I had the reminder, right? That's mm-hmm. where it was. That's where it happened. And then people on the course started talking about the incident and they said, yeah, you know, I heard that the girl that was right beside him, like she went off on PTSD and she hasn't, she hasn't been on the job at all. Uh And then I said, no, that's not true because I was the girl beside him and I haven't missed a day. Right. It Uh was almost like it was a bit of ego. Right. But it was like, you know, I haven't missed a day. I've been tough. You know, I've Uh been okay. But that's what got me thinking, like, is that the kind of incident that would lead to PTSD? Because I didn't know, like, you know, at the time, I wouldn't have said I had PTSD. I wasn't feeling depressed. I wasn't feeling anxious. Uh I was just having midday flashbacks. Um, Sometimes I, you know, I'd I'd have like an exaggerated image in my mind of blood dripping off the cuff of his pant and pooling on the floor. Like, Uh weird things would happen in the middle of the day. And then I started having intrusive thoughts where, you know, I'd, I'd be looking at, like just a a grocery store and there's a child, but in my mind, something horrific would happen to that child. Like these things were happening before me. And, and I, and that's, I I knew enough about PTSD to know that it's probably that incident that's affecting me. So Mm -hmm. there was a time I sought medical attention and my doctor put me on some medication to try to help with sleep and everything else. So I knew that it was bothering me, but it was going back to the college where things really picked up where I really started to get the nightmares again and the, and the midday flashbacks and weird, like really weird intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. And then, but I still had a handle on it. Right. I still was like, I I'm I'm not too proud to go get help. So I was seeing a therapist at one point I was seeing my doctor when I needed to, Mm -hmm. I thought that I had a good handle on it. And it wasn't until, you know, when I decided to do my delegation and then they put me under this retaliation and like the oppression that I felt like for, you know, the months that I stayed on the job, nobody would speak to me. So even in the hallways, like people would look down when they walked past me because it was like I had the plague. Once I was blacklisted, I had the plague and nobody would talk to me. So that's when my health really started to spiral. And I still felt like I had a, I had some control on it, but it was that one week where I had, I think I had four panic attacks in one week. I'd never had a panic attack Mm -hmm. before. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd always been able to keep my stress under control but that's when I realized that there is a point where the body takes over. Yeah. And it did that week. And, you know, that was the first week I just said, I can't come into work. I got to, I got to get a handle on this um, and started, you know, regular care with my doctor and psychologist and psychiatrist. And, and I just, I couldn't come back to work because like that environment became so toxic for me that mm-hmm. I just, the thought of coming back, like at one point, you know, they, they wanted to interview me for this misconduct investigation. And I kept saying, like, if you have substantiated misconduct, then go ahead and charge me because I knew I had done nothing wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. So I I hated the fact that I was being pressured. Like at one point they were threatening to charge me with insubordination if I didn't come back to work, but Mm -hmm. I just wasn't well enough. Right. Mm -hmm. At the time I wasn't well enough. So they knew, you know, when I resigned, they knew that I was not well, they knew I was getting treatment. Um, And the way our like workers compensation goes here, um, they were actually, you know, workers compensation was paying my salary while I was there. But when I resigned, um, I had to work all this out ahead of time because I didn't want to lose all of my care. Like, yeah. If I was going to resign and give up my benefits, um, I needed to know my psychology and medication would continue to be paid for. So I I had all that arranged. I knew that when I resigned, they're going to keep paying for my psychology until I don't need it, obviously. Mm-hmm. right? If I, if I recover to the point I don't need it, they're going to stop paying for it. So part of me leaving was I, I made sure that the police service couldn't touch that. right? They couldn't prevent me from getting care. Because I knew that police services retaliate against whistleblowers to no end. Mm-hmm. But part of it was that I want to keep getting care until I'm well enough to not need it. Mm-hmm. Six months after I resigned, they appealed my claim for benefits. They wanted mm-hmm. to remove my benefits. Uh-huh. 
And, and, and that to me was like the first major action they took that really showed me that like, they're, I'm never going to get away from them. Right. Like, because I did what I did, I'm always going to be on their radar. They're always going to want to suppress me, oppress me, uh, ostracize me, alienate mm-hmm. me, whatever they're all, and, and I mean, when you know what you know about PTSD, like I know that you do and some people don't, but mm-hmm. like the, these people, these same people coming after me are going on the news and talking about how, you know, it's so sad that so many officers are taking their lives that have PTSD mm-hmm. and we really have to do more for these officers. We have to help them. Um, there, there was an inquest in 2018 because I think it was eight or nine police officers from one police service took their lives that year. Wow. And our provincial coroner got involved and did an inquest. But, you know, my, my chief was one of the guys in the media saying how important this inquest is that we have to do more. And then here they are trying to remove the only care I'm getting. Mm-hmm. even though they signed a contract that said they would leave it alone. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and it just, you know, and I think the biggest part for me was the institutional betrayal and the moral injury, because, you know, I did have faith in our system. That's mm-hmm. why I became a police officer, because mm-hmm. I believed that there was still some good in the system. And I wanted to contribute to that. Mm-hmm. But here I was, I tried to expose the wrongdoing and I was punished. And then I'm the only thing I'm trying to do is just move on with my life and make a difference. And they're still coming after me. So it was like the, the, I think for me, it was really the moral injury that has compounded my PTSD. Oh yeah. You know, if I could have avoided the moral injury and the institutional betrayal, I could have managed the PTSD from the incident my whole life. I had it under control. I was managing it, but it was everything else that came that made it so much worse, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so, th- so that was the start of it, right? They, they appealed my claim. And that's when I knew that I, I don't work for them anymore, but they're not going to leave me alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what began, you know, what is now a five-year litigation battle that is nowhere near concluding. Oh, wow. Um, they've made allegations against me that by speaking publicly, I'm violating the agreement. Uh-huh. So it didn't matter. Like, it really didn't matter that at the time I refused to sign a non-disclosure clause saying uh-huh. I won't speak. They're holding me to it as if I did anyways, because... I've gained so much traction now. I mean, people are really starting to listen to me and, you know, especially when lawmakers start listening to me, uh-huh. it's like they're, they're looking for anything they can do that might slow me down. Totally. My, you know, it, it, and I have said this publicly because I do ultimately feel this way. I think they want me to commit suicide. I think they're hoping really? because if you knew, you know, and I talk about this in my book, if you knew the, the lengths to which they have pushed me, mm-hmm. like they have pushed me and pushed me. And when they knew I was on the edge, they pushed me again. And if it wasn't for my husband now, you know, because I met him throughout this ordeal, but there have been many times in the last five years that if it wasn't for him, uh-huh. I probably wouldn't be here. Uh-huh. What? Okay. So let's, let's go, let's pick up the story. Cause I got us off on a different tangent. So they're not listening to you. You you quit the force. You're doing your um, psychology, trying to manage yourself. Like, what's your what's your process been? What what are you doing now? How are you making money? What, what's the tell me about that? So when I first left, um, I started my own company. Mm-hmm. It, um, at the time, what I wanted to do was I wanted to actually administer whistleblower programs, but you know I. Huh. It, it's still it's still something that's not widely understood. Mm-hmm. So I was coming into an industry trying to, you know, start something that wasn't that popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so initially, what I ended up doing was consulting. So I had a lot of clients that were really interested in the idea, but weren't ready to take the plunge. So mm-hmm. wanted me to consult with them around how they could um, just as I 
Sure. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, about how they could improve their current policies and improve their current procedures, make it um, easier for people to report wrongdoing, maybe some form of protection. We so were like, getting there, right? We like were slowly getting there. Human resources consulting sort of. Yes. Sounds like, okay, okay. Yeah. But all, all around whistleblowing and protecting whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. um, and I did, I had a police service contract me as a consultant and um, I, did, I worked with them on reviewing workplace investigations, make sure they were done properly, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, throughout the fall of 2017 and early into 2018, I was cultivating some business relationships that would have provided me an income sufficient to sustain my lifestyle, right? Sure. Support my kids. Mm -hmm. I, I was on a good path. Mm -hmm. And it was really like, you know, when they retaliated against me, when they appealed my claim for benefits, like my health again, just started to spiral. It was more, it was just more of that institutional betrayal and moral trauma, mm -hmm. you know, and it's really hard to explain to somebody that doesn't understand it. But it's like when, when you're the one watching your chief on TV and you know, he's not being truthful, mm -hmm. like that, that really changes a person, right? Yeah. yeah. Because you're that person that's like, I know he's lying and people look at you like, well, you're out to lunch. You're crazy. Mm -hmm. And and that's been my whole existence, right, has just been that I can't stand that there are people that, you know, are wearing a badge that are, you know, held up so high in society. But what's really happening is not what people see. Right, right. There's this whole other side of what's going on that's not allowed to be exposed. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'm not trying. My goal has never been to expose dirt on anybody. It's to expose the systematic problems, mm -hmm. like the laws that need to change the, you know, the oversight issues that we have we don't have effective oversight in canada of our mm -hmm. police services mm -hmm. and that's been my goal from day one so it's so, it, my health my health spiraled in 2018 uh -huh. um, so i had actually gotten to the point where i wasn't taking medication oh, cool. um, i was still seeing a psychologist but mm -hmm. you know not as frequently like you know once a month or whatever it was mm -hmm. but then when this all started happening like you know i called her and said like I, I, there have been times where I've been like on the verge, like almost need to go to the hospital, but it was like, I need to start seeing you more. At least I'm going to start my medication again. Like I, I tried to control things myself. Um, the fall of 2018, because 2018 was a really bad year for me. Like they filed their case against me. They filed a 600 page case against me. Like it wasn't oh, anything minor. Mm -hmm. It was pretty much like they'd surveilled me for the last year. Right. Mm -hmm. They'd collected everything I had done, everything I'd said publicly. And they were alleging, you know what, you're breaching the agreement. We're going to file this case against you at our human rights tribunal of all places. Mm -hmm. So they were using the tri the human rights tribunal to come after me. But things just spiraled. I mean, I, I did everything I could to point out that there's nothing in the contract that says I can't talk like and how do they have the right to do this if, if legally there's no basis for their case? I even went to our superior court and filed a motion to to dismiss their case, alleging that it was a gag proceeding. So we have a law that, you know, if somebody um, sues you for defamation, but they're trying to suppress debate on a matter of public interest, mm -hmm. you can apply and have that dis dismissed. So I did that. But the the ruling was that um, the, that law doesn't apply to a matter before the tribunal. So it was just a jurisdictional issue. I couldn't get it dismissed. Um, but that was my 2018 was fighting this case saying this shouldn't be allowed. Why is it even allowed? Um, that fall, my health had spiraled to the point where I was assessed to attend an, an in-person, like an inpatient PTSD oh, treatment man. program. Mm -hmm. um, but I couldn't do it because it would have meant like, you know, I, I had my three kids. I had my house. I had sure. bills to pay. I would have had to take 60 days away from my life and go to this program. Yeah. So I knew I needed treatment, but I that wasn't going to work for me. Um, and then I just I was on a mission to seek out treatment that fit into my life and allowed me to keep trying to earn an income somehow. Yeah. 
Um, and I did. So in this, in the winter of 2019, I did attend a program that was, um, it was, it's an excellent program run by our veterans affairs of Canada. Mm. Um, but it's, it's a program that is open to veterans and first responders, but you attend on weekends. So it's every other weekend and they're, so they're spread out and yeah. it worked out that those were the weekends I didn't have the kids. So I oh. could go to this treatment program, uh-huh. come back to my life, you know, keep working on my business. And to me, that program was a turning point for my health because oh. from that point on, uh-huh. um, I, I was inspired. I was empowered. Um, I really had a, I really felt like I had a good grip on my health at that point. Um, and that was 2019, but the, I mean, the litigation hasn't ended. And it's, if anything, they're ramping it up. So I've made all these attempts to get my health back on track. I keep, I keep working at my business, trying to build my client base. Mm -hmm. And every time I get ahead, it's like they do something to shove me back. Mm -hmm. So even, I mean, what is it now? It's February, December 23rd, the the day before the Christmas break began, they served me again. They amended their case against me another 500 pages or so. And they're still alleging that everything I've done. So they've had me under full surveillance. They had somebody that's gone through every one of my social media accounts, you know, even my comments and my replies to Uh tweets. Like someone has spent hours and hours of work going through everything I've done to try Uh to allege that I'm breaching the agreement when I speak publicly. And I I don't know if you noticed, I have it on my Twitter account, but I've been going through our freedom of information laws to obtain the legal invoices that they're paying to this lawyer. Uh-huh. And at this point, they've paid him over $600,000 just oh, on man. my case. And I don't even work there anymore, right? Uh-huh. So like my whole thing has just been like, all they want to do is stop me from talking, however they need to do that, whether mm-hmm. it's like laying this case against me and then I get so overwhelmed because I'm representing myself. There's no way I would have been able to afford a lawyer this Yeah, I was wondering about that. If someone might have took you, because here we have like the ACLU, American Civil Liberties, and they'll do stuff like that. Uh, but you're on your own, huh? Yeah, yeah, we have. Um, we do have some agencies that will help whistleblowers. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I haven't found one that has seen a benefit in my case. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one in 2018 that was going to help me, but the, the pro bono lawyer, they, they hooked me up with, she basically said, I'll, I'll help you, but we're just going to settle these matters. And I said, well, that's not good enough. I haven't done anything wrong. Like Uh in, you know, in Canada, lawyers pretty much run the show. So no matter what it is, it's like, we're going to settle. We're going to, we're going to sign, we're going to get the NDA signed. I mean, even Uh when I resigned, um, I had a voicemail recording from the police service lawyer saying, um, we're not trying to stop you from speaking out, but you know, like these are standard releases that get signed. You know, I, I've done this for 20 or 30 years. Nobody's ever objected to them. Uh-huh. Well, I'm sorry that nobody has, but I am. That's your right? whole like, jam is, is objecting. Yeah. <laughs> things oh things have to change. I mean, we can't, we can't keep allowing lawyers to get, mm-hmm. to throw these contracts in front of victims and say, just sign it on the dotted line. Like don't mm-hmm. read the contents. Mm-hmm. Don't understand the implications. Just sign it. And go away because we're trying to protect these powerful people whose reputations can't be tarnished, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's what we do in Canada. We just throw contracts at people. Everything gets mediated. You know, rarely can you take your case all the way to the point where it's actually adjudicated by someone, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's the case I'm in. I'm five years in and I just want somebody to actually adjudicate these cases. Mm-hmm. Look at the police services case and realize that I'm allowed to speak. Their case has no legal basis. Mm-hmm. And look at my case against them and say, yes, you did breach the agreement because you said you wouldn't appeal her case for benefits, mm-hmm. right? Like, but it's, it, it, I don't know when I'll ever see that day. It could be another five years before I have any kind of a hearing on the merits of these cases. Huh. So in the meantime, right? In the meantime, I have to keep my head above water. I have to keep 
fighting, you know, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Because I'm supposed to be earning an income and supporting my family. But it's really forced me into a place like last year, I had to just tell my clients that I had to put the business on hold. I couldn't manage both because I had mm-hmm. so much legal work I had to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you can imagine not being a lawyer. Every time I have to write a submission, there's hours and hours oh, of yeah. research that goes into it mm-hmm. before I can even start writing. So, mm-hmm. and, and I never get compensated for that, right? As a self-represented person, no. when we, when I, cause I have been successful, I, mm-hmm. I beat them at the court of appeal in 2019. Um, but my costs are, are very limited to what I get versus, mm-hmm. you know, what they would get from me because I'm not an actual lawyer, but there's no consideration given to the fact that it takes me longer to do everything because I, I don't know the stuff like, yeah. you know, like they well, do, right. I don't have well, the, you, the training, you know, it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's for sure. So, so what's your path forward? Like, what are you like, like I get you're on a mission. Do you have any plans or is it just defense right now? It really is just defense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've really involved, I've, I've really enjoyed doing workplace investigations only because it's gotten me back into that, like mm-hmm. desire to want to investigate um, in, I think it was 2020, I got licensed to, to conduct workplace investigations okay. and I, I spent a year doing that. Um, and that was it. Like it was a busy year. I, I got, I did get quite a bit of business, but again, it was the litigation that was weighing me down. So mm-hmm. I didn't renew my license to be an investigator. Um, so I let that lapse because I just couldn't keep up with sure. you know, everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, I, I'm not sure, like I've thought about maybe getting back into the investigations, but everything, everything's dependent on the police service. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that if they continue to come after me, I don't know if I'll have the time or energy to do anything. And I am really worried because when I commit myself to something, it's it's 100 percent and no, I go, I go 100 miles an hour. I got it. So I got it. I'm afraid I'm afraid to really invest in something and then and then not be able to manage it all. So if they really start to ramp up again, I won't be able to manage it. And then it's going to be half assed. And I, I, I don't like to do that. Uh-huh. So I'm really in this like limbo right now because as long as they continue to do what they're doing. And, you know, I, I, I joke about it now, but I kind of think, well, maybe I'll be the million dollar baby. Maybe they're going to get up to a million dollars in their legal fund against uh-huh. me. And then I'll have something to really brag about because, you know, th- right now they're debating their budget and they're going to council and they're begging for more money. And they're saying like, we need more officers. We need more money. We need this. Uh-huh. We need that. And no one has ever asked them like, well, where's the money coming from to pay uh-huh. this lawyer to go after this former employee and and is it really in the public interest that we do this at all now in would there ever be a circumstance where you would just be done and settle like where they just the whole thing it's like okay we're i'm done i gotta get on with my life or are you are you in it like well at this point i I can't do that because they have a case against me Uh so if, if i said i'm done i give up they're gonna keep coming after me they want me to pay them significant damages they want me to stop selling my book, you know, basically erase that anything ever happened to me uh-huh. at, while I worked there, uh-huh. right? They want to erase their conduct after the fact because they couldn't do it when I left. Like, that's what really upsets me is mm. I, I want to set a precedence for all the other victims that get silenced because, uh-huh. you know, in my case, like, because right now Canada is really debating the use of non-disclosure agreements and when they should and should not be used. And a lot of it is because of the Me Too movement. You know, Uh like what's been exposed in Canada is that, you know, we have organizations that have allowed things as egregious as sexual assault by, you know, in some cases, a public officer that gets concealed and covered up forever because Uh 
There's a legal agreement that gets drafted. The victim signs it. She goes away. And what people don't see is when a victim is silenced like that and they're not allowed to share what happened to them, uh-huh. but they experience the trauma and their health declines. <clears throat> like, where do they get help? Right. Where right. do they get support? Yeah, totally. Um, wow. So now you're you got a book. What's your book? It's called Police Line Do Not Cross. Oh, and wow. That's a good it's title. all about. Yeah, it's about I crossed the line and and now uh-huh. I'm being silenced at all costs. I mean, uh-huh. it, it's I think it's a bit sensational. And that's why I continue to share my story, mm-hmm. um, because I think there's so much value in it. There's value for lawmakers. There's value for um, corporate organizations who mm-hmm. want to do better. They can see that like if this is what's happening within a police service. Like, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I did come to learn when I started working in, in the corporate world, I did come to learn that policing is probably the most toxic environment. Um, much more so than um, the corporate environment in the sense that, you know, these people that gain control over you have control over your entire life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So even if, you know, you blow the whistle, you go home, you you leave your house to go to the grocery store and there's a risk that you're going to get pulled over. There's a risk that they'll show up at your door with a warrant and want to search your house and take any evidence you have because they've done that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a risk that they will come to your house and apprehend you under the mental health act and claim that you're crazy and put you in a mental institution for three or four days. Oh, you know, wow. These are things that they have done to police mm-hmm. whistleblowers. So mm-hmm. it it's a totally different layer of fear. Yeah. You know, and they've they've successfully instilled that fear in every single person that sees what I saw and uh-huh. says nothing. Yeah. Oh you my know? gosh. And so it's worked for them up until now. Yeah. Wow. Until you came along. Okay. So then you're out speaking too. Are you you're speaking a lot? What do you how's that going? Yeah, I I I did a lot of speaking in Canada. Um, mm-hmm. My first actual speaking engagement will be at the Washington DC summit, which is really exciting because yeah. I've done a lot of, um, a lot of programs. I actually noticed that you did Michael Wilson's whistleblower show and I'm one of one of his episodes as well. Are you? Okay. Cause I, I was thinking, I, I'm like, Oh my yeah. gosh, you need to know Michael. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, that's one thing I thought has been really great is the Americans that are so interested in my case because you know, in the United States, if I was a police officer that wanted to expose something, there's a potential whistleblower award there for me, right? Mm-hmm. And that kind of stuff doesn't happen in Canada. We don't even recognize whistleblowers. There's no, there is absolutely no benefit to speaking out. So every time I hear people say, like, oh, you're just in it for the money, or you're just in it for this, you're just in it for that, like, there is, it, all it is is a financial, psychological, and mental cost to me, mm-hmm. entirely me. I'm the only one paying the cost right now to try to get these issues, to try to shed more light on these issues. But I th- I feel that it's that important because we should have laws. I mean, you know, I, I tell people all the time, like, you know, when I consult clients, I say, like, you can't be afraid of the whistleblower. The whistleblower is the person that is telling you something that everyone else knows, but no one else has the courage to tell you. Yeah. Because the, the whistleblowers don't expose something that just started happening for the first time right? Whistleblowers expose things that have been going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And everyone else that's been a part of it hasn't had the courage to speak up. Mm-hmm. So really, like we should be rewarding these whistleblowers, not punishing them. Oh, totally. Oh, my gosh. Well, there's just a ton here. Um, and, and I know that there's people out there that this is going to help. And so um, how can I get a hold of you? I have a website, kellydonovan.ca. Mm-hmm. Um, th- and that's pretty much for me to share a little bit about my story, but all my legal decisions are published there. Some, some articles, it's really, you know, I didn't realize this would be going on this long. Like yeah. I really felt that the police service would have some kind of fiduciary duty to back off because 
they're spending the public's money and it's a, it is a personal vendetta. Uh-huh. You know, somebody there has a personal vendetta against me because I still 100% believe that the issues I discuss are matters of public interest. Yeah. And I can't wait for the opportunity to challenge that in court mm-hmm. if I ever get the opportunity. Um, but from there, you know, you've got a breakdown of the legal decisions our articles. There's a link to buy my book. It's available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have two books now. So when I left and I released that report that I call, I turned the report into a book because um, at the time I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. I just sent it out to all the government agencies, but now that's available as well on Amazon. Okay. And I've made that an audio book on Audible. So I'm working now on getting my second book available as an audio book mm-hmm. um, because you know I, I have a hard time focusing on pa- like words on paper because of my PTSD. So I know that a lot of people in that same boat are going to have equal trouble. So I'm trying to make it available as an audiobook because it's so much easier to get through. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So you got a few resources for people. It's kellydonovan.ca because you're from Canada. And um, you know what? Thank you so much for coming on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups here. And, you know, more power to you. Fight the good fight. And I'm glad people like you are out there. I know it's a lot, but um, thanks for from all of us. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time. So you had to read the directions. It broke you down. Don't don't tell anybody. It's on the podcast now. No, no nobody needs to know that I had to read the directions to use the dishwasher. Well, you know, the dishwasher in this house when we bought it was... Um, it was so bad the dishes came out dirtier than when they went in. <laughs> we used paper plates for like a year. <laughs> it's like there's a secret crock pot full of old moldy food somewhere underneath the countertop and it's secretly pumping that into your dish. Yeah, that's what that's exactly what it was like. <laughs> it's funny because my 35, 40 year old dishwasher, the the Whirlpool from 1980 something mm-hmm. that I took out to put this one in, ironically was working just fine. Thing was 40 years old. Now you look at the reviews for new dishwashers. They're awful. And, oh yeah, it's terrible. And people are talking about it, they don't clean. They don't, you know, they have all these features, but they don't do anything. And my stuff's coming out dirtier than it went in. And it broke in within a week and it's all leaking all over the floor. And I'm like, Good Lord. I well, our, our refrigerator, tomorrow. you know, it, it freezes up. The, what? The, yeah. The whole, Matt has to get in there, empty the whole thing out, get in there with a hairdryer and try to unfreeze the water line. And I'm like, how long have we been doing this? Like this refrigeration <laughs> thing's not new. It's not new. The water dispenser, not new. Yeah. Marcy has all kinds of issues with her refrigerator to the point where she's had repairmen out there multiple times. And this is a nice like Samsung French door deal, mm-hmm. kind of like yours. And and it just, it, there's always something wrong with the thing. And you look online, you find that all kinds of other people have had all the same problems. And, you know, even the, the technician comes out and says, yeah, there's no fix for this. It's just crappy well that's just the deal the, and that, and that's it we've had the repairman out several times with some kind of fix it pack that the that they issued it's just ridiculous um